0: Welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's a political analyst and researcher who specializes in Libyan affairs and, more generally, politics, governance and development in the Arab world. Our conversation today is about Libya. Is all-out war the outcome of foreign players meddling in Libya's civil conflict? Tarek, uh, thank you very much for taking part in the Arab Digest podcast.
1: Ah, oh, thank you for having me on again. It's it's a real pleasure to be here, Bill.
0: Now, look, I want to I want to put two names on the table: the city of Sirte and the airbase at Al Jufra. Uh, let me begin with Sirte. What is the strategic importance of Sirte, and what is the likelihood that the forces loyal to Tripoli, based government of national accord, the GNA? Uh, what is the likelihood that they will launch uh, an all-out attack to secure Sirt?
1: You know there are two sides of the argument here. There's like a, a defensive reason why the GNA would like to claim Sirt, because as they have seen over the last few months, that's a very useful launch pad uh, for any offensives towards Misrata. And then there's the kind of offensive piece of the puzzle, uh, which is that from Sirt, um, and also from the associated airbase in Zhoffra, in, in, in it becomes much easier to project power over Libya's oil infrastructure. You know, from Sirt, you can try to project over the oil crescent, which is this kind of lucrative strip uh, of oil export terminals and other infrastructure. And from Jofra, you can control the roads going from the east towards the south crucially towards the capital of the south uh, Sebha and from there to, to some of the bigger oil fields so i think from a political perspective you know the government of national accord and, and and their turkish allies will be thinking that if they if they really do want to step ahead with a political deal and do this from a position of strength then they need to take Sirt, uh, which will allow them then to project power to try to to bully the eastern bloc um, and unfortunately, that makes conflict quite likely, uh, especially considering how intransigent as ever all parties in Libya are. And then just the international side of the conflict, um, because you know in Libya these days there's always an international driver. And Sirte, more than its its kind of strategic location within Libya, it's also quite a strategic site on the Mediterranean. And it should be noted that you know when the the new lines of this conflict were drawn on Sirte, it wasn't done by you know Haftar's troops digging in or this Libyan Arab Armed Forces of, in any way. It was done by Russian jets uh, who bombed quite heavily, who instigated quite serious casualties on the government side. Um, and since then, you know, you've we can see through through satellite imagery and and other such things that there is Russian build-up in in its local air base of uh, Qardabiyya, uh, and in its naval port. And for, for the United States and for NATO, this is, a, this is a big no-no, for want of a better term. Um, if the Russians are entrenched in Qardabiyya, and they can put up the same kind of uh, denial of access uh, and air defense systems as they have in Syria, that could seriously impinge the freedom Uh, of nato aircraft to operate out of the bases in sicily Uh, if russians entrench in the naval base in sirt this could seriously you know impact the freedom of navigation of of the u.s fleets that operate in the mediterranean uh, and other such uh, western vessels so there's all manner of drivers that is seemingly making this conflict an inevitable one and that's really sad because it's going to be a of a far greater scale than even the battle for Tripoli was by the looks of it.
0: You've spoken about uh, Jufra, the airbase. Can you zero in a little bit on its strategic importance?
1: Yeah, I mean, Jufra is, is kind of like the, strategically speaking, is is the heart of Libya. It's that central node. Especially if we're talking about aircraft and their traditional ranges in, in the hundreds of kilometers Um you know, without needing to to refuel or for unmanned aerial vehicles. From Jufra, you can go, as I said before, to the capital of the south, which will help you either to defend the oil fields in the southwest of Libya or to attack them. Uh, You can go from there northwards to Misrata and up to the coast. Um, So it's quite, uh, yeah, it's essentially this this central node in, in the... The nervous system of Libya, uh, which is why it's, it's, it's an airbase that, um, that is so prized by all the different sides. Just one more note on, on, on how it might be useful is that a couple of weeks ago, we saw an airstrike on, on the now Turkish controlled airfield in, in Western Libya called Wutia. And this was a, a plane that seemingly took off from Western Egypt and traversed the, the breadth of Libya to get there. Um, So from a a defensive position, having the site in in central Libya right in the middle, it will become far easier to defend western Libya from all different types of threats that might be launched against it.
0: Now, Turkey is ramping up its military support. Uh, Tell me about what the Turks are up to, how far they are prepared to go to committing more military resources in support of the GNA, And and what's in it for them? I mean, you're very clear about what the Russians are getting out of this. But what about the Turks?
1: I mean, the Turks have managed to to be quite successful on a relatively small outlay. And I use the term relatively quite specifically there because we're comparing them to to the United Arab Emirates, um, who have invested hundreds of tons um, of weaponry and armaments and mercenaries and so on. And so the question is, how much more are they willing to give? I think they will feel that, materially speaking, they're in quite a comfortable place. And what they would like to do now is to upgrade the operational capacity of, of their Libyan partners. Um, and so we see the beginnings of kind of a security sector reform program. We see units going from uh, Libya to, to Turkey to be trained um, and then at the same time, yes, of course, there is this kind of technological advantage that advanced wep- uh, Turkish weaponry is, is providing uh, fighters aligned to the government of national accord. So how much further are they willing to go? It, it kind of depends how the war goes, because, you know, if they start this war, then suddenly Turkish pride is once again on the line here. Uh, and locally within Turkey, this war or this intervention in Libya started off as not being very popular and now has been boosted because, you know, everybody loves, loves a winner. Uh, and back home at least is being marketed as a complete success. But, you know, as, as helpful as the Turkish intervention has been uh, for those in Tripoli and for those wanting to kind of beat back this ominous dictatorship or would-be dictator in, in, in Khalifa Haftar. It, it wasn't a kind of altruistic affair. Uh, and Turkey does have, let's say, two main goals in Libya. Uh, one would be economic and one would be geopolitical. Uh, and these two, two different spheres, they, they meet in the idea of a, a maritime boundary agreed between the, the government in Tripoli and the Turkish government um, because it's Turkey's way of trying to assert dominance in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, and to be able to, to compete with, or to compete in waters that Cyprus considers to be theirs and that other countries consider to be theirs when drilling for gas. So Turkey needs this deal to be kept alive, which means that they need the GNA or, or those who are friendly to Turkey to remain in in a position of power and governance and prominence uh, in Libyan politics. But most importantly, they need to ensure that nothing will happen in Eastern Libya that could threaten this kind of contiguity of the the maritime boundary, because it extends from Eastern Libya geographically uh, towards Turkey. To kind of scale back from the maritime aspect, you know, Turkey has been expanding its operations in Africa uh, more generally. Uh, you know, Turkey is trying to sell itself globally as a as a big player um, in the construction market, and in infrastructure, and now in defense systems as well. Uh, and Libya is is not only the gate to Africa, but it's also a really valuable market in its own right. You know, Turkey had arguably somewhere between nineteen and twenty five billion dollars worth of contracts tied up when the revolution happened, which they would be more than eager to restart. Um, and then there's also the question of reconstruction, um, of retooling the, the Libyan army. And also, as, as kind of macabre as this may be, you know, in, 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 the de, in the defense industry, there's kind of a term where you can call your products laboratory tested if they've been used in the battlefield before. And as we can see with kind of some of the promo videos for the new Bayraktar drones, you know, Turkish weapons are getting a really good outing in Libya, uh, and Libya is the laboratory for Turkish weapons now.
0: Watching this uh, Turkish initiative with a fair degree of unease is Egypt. Uh, now, the president, uh, President Sisi, he's wavered, hasn't he, between going to war and not going to war? But the House of Representatives, that's the eastern part, based in Benghazi, uh, they're presumably still backing uh, Khalifa Haftar. The House of Representatives is now asking Sisi, well, come on, take them on. Let's go to war on this one. That would be a huge gamble, surely, for President Sisi, wouldn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. And it's it's, it's one that he might get suckered into, which would be to the detriment of, of eastern Libya, western Libya, Egypt, and kind of the whole central Mediterranean region. But just to to step back for a minute, I mean, the... The entity in in eastern Libya is now very different to to what was there even a couple of months ago. You know, a couple of months ago, this was a military style dictatorship with your, you know, traditional curmudgeon strongman at the top in in Khalifa Haftar. Um, After the kind of collapse of the Tripoli offensive, this notion of of the libyan arab armed forces as this you know centrally commanded body has kind of crumbled and it's the secret that everybody in eastern libya is trying to keep under wraps the fact that you know all of these disparate militias and self-interest groups that were aligned with the central command suddenly realized that you know Haftar is unable to protect them from the turks and to you know to provide them with enough to keep the war going and so they split you know they ran from from the tripoli lines from tarhuna uh, even from the Sirat um, front line, as they heard that forces were approaching. And so, you know, this k- kind of cabal of, of, of states that were supporting this opposing entity, um, I think they feared the worst initially. They feared that, you know, now that the Haftar dream is over, they're going to get suckered into some kind of UN process and they're going to have to start from scratch. But when none of the Western world, you know, came, came to knock with these requests, they kind of just flipped the Eastern entity on its head. So now we have something under the Speaker of the House uh, of, of uh, Representatives, which is Libya's last elected parliament. Um, and so the narrative that comes out is saying that this is actually a political entity. It's an entity that's defending democracy in Libya because the House of Representatives is the last elected body. Um, and let's forget all of the, the very awkward... Uh, questions that have arisen over the last five years. Um, and, you know, the Libyan Arab Armed Forces is actually the army of the Libyan state as appointed uh, by Aguila Saleh, who is the real leader of what's going on. Um, and so now they have to try to sell this narrative. And that works with their traditional allies, with the French, um, with the newer allies like the Greeks, uh, who are there to kind of push back against Turkey. But if the Turks and the government in Tripoli continue to encroach, continue to push them back, then this will no longer fly within Libya. This entity will no longer be considered worth anybody's while to to deal with, let alone to you know to be a counterbalance to the government in Tripoli. Um, and so they feel like they need to defend it. And Sirte is that line which they must defend um, because if they lose Sirte. Uh, then just due to the virtues of, of Libyan geography, they're going to be pushed back hundreds of kilometers. Um, and then all of a sudden, it's no longer kind of the majority of Libyan land is under their control of, as opposed to a Western Libyan enclave. It will be an Eastern Libyan enclave um, with very fractious control as the tribes start to quarrel amongst themselves and you know, start to get bought into the wider GNA uh, framework. So it's really like an all or nothing game right now um, for for those who once backed Haftar and who are now propping up this new entity under Aguila Sala.
0: Aguilar Saleh is the speaker, isn't he, of the House of Representatives?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sorry if I if I hadn't named him before. Um, but this is why President Sisi is getting suckered into into protecting him. Traditionally, if you want to militarily intervene um, in another country, you have a very clear goal and a very clear strategy for achieving that goal. In Libya, that's that's very hard to define, you know, because from their perspective, surely all they have to do is is frustrate the Turks. But does that mean that the Egyptians are now going to be the spearhead um, of the Haftar project and young Egyptian men are going to have to go into Sirt uh, and, and, and hold the line there for a year or so? Uh, a body's going to get sent back to Cairo. Who's going to foot the bill? Are the Emiratis going to foot the entire bill? Because you know, Lord knows, the Egyptians have some financial problems of their own. Um, and who, how will they maintain such a long supply line towards Sirt? You know, as we've seen, they 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 struggle enough with a prolonged deployment in the Sinai, which is in their own territory. Um, so there are a lot of operational questions which the egyptian military command i have no doubt are, are fully aware of so i think at least for the beginning you know what an, any egyptian intervention will look like will either be overtly claimed uh, airstrikes overtly claimed um, arms deliveries which have happened covertly before or perhaps you know a small presence that goes into eastern libya to kind of shore up benghazi and and, and shore up places like that and 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 help to to pump some faith and confidence back into the Libyan Arab Armed Forces, um, but it's a slippery slope, and it you know everybody could slip down it quite quickly.
0: Yeah, as you say, a slippery slope. Uh, now look, just two just two days after Libya's National Oil Corporation lifted the force majeure, they had it was clapped back down again, and they pointed the finger at the Emiratis. They said the renewed blockade on the oil exports. Uh, was right down to Abu Dhabi, and I'm wondering how deeply the UAE is still committed to Haftar. I mean, clearly they're still playing in a major way, we know that, but what about Haftar?
1: I mean, look, Haftar was always a, a symbol for them of the type of governance of what they wanted for Libya. Um, I think that they, like everybody else, realizes that Haftar, the character, might be a bit more difficult than they anticipated, which is why now, you know, all of the attention and focus has gone into this, this notion that the Libyan Arab Armed Forces is not military institution of Libya, and that, you know, they can keep this political facade with Aguila Saleh over it. So they're still very much wedded to that idea um, rather than to, to the personality of, of Haftar himself. Um, and, you know, the, the UAE remains the, the central antagonist in the, in the Libyan saga. You know, if we were to break this up into chapters, this last month or so is the Emirate Strikes Back. Um, it's how they're getting reinvolved in Libya. You know, there is a lot of anecdotal evidence that suggests that you know they played a leading role in in getting Cairo to bring Aguila and Haftar together again to launch this Cairo proposal, which was the the rebranding of the Haftar project. Uh, you know they seem to be the ones footing the bill for for Russia's intervention in terms of the the Wagner Group mercenaries, the aircraft, um, and others who are holding the line in Sirte and who are preparing the, the defences against any future GNA enterprise. You know, this, the UAE are the ones who have maintained the dichotomy in Libya uh, when there perhaps might have been a slim opportunity to just move forwards um, after the uh, assault on Tripoli collapsed.
0: I want to ask you about uh, Donald Trump and the U.S. because Trump was in conversation with President Erdogan uh, about working closely to achieve what they said, uh, stability in Libya. What's the backstory there? Because America has really been in the background and then this whole Libya saga.
1: Yeah, I mean, as we've seen from other kind of news sources, President Erdogan and, and President Trump uh, have been in, in quite regular contact with, with 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 one another throughout this presidency. But, you know, on, with this president, it, it seems very difficult to, to hold him at his word uh, in the sense that you could very easily imagine that President Erdogan would have a conversation with, with, with President Trump uh, and President Trump would would tell him that, uh, you know, the United States are behind him 100 uh, percent. And then he could close the phone and uh, Mohammed bin Zayed or President Sisi could call Donald Trump right after and he would promise them the exact same thing. And so this kind of mixed messaging from the top, it, it helps everybody and it helps nobody. Um, if we kind of trickle down the U.S. system, you know, if we look at the State Department, we see that there is a very strong policy line which says immediate de-escalation. Let's try to escape having a war for Sirt. Uh They're exploring kind of other diplomatic avenues, such as you know, how to how to divvy up the oil resources, uh, which I think is a is a red header is a red herring for a for a different question. But then you have the Department of Defense and the Africa Command people and if you look at the very public positions they're taking which is very rare for for military men to to do you can see that that they are greatly concerned over Russia's growing entrenchment and and what they really care about is seeing Russia expunged from from Libya's political and military scene so all in all it's 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 kind of a mixed bag and I'm not sure how this is going to play out you know the 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 Turks will feel that if they're attacking Sirat, that they are doing NATO's dirty work for them and the US and others should therefore back them. But on the other side, the Egyptians and the Emiratis might be thinking that, you know, we've got a few months left until November. We don't know how long Trump will be around for. So let's just make sure that we do what we need to do before the presidency might change.
0: Now, I've seen reports, uh, you, we, you've mentioned the Russians uh, and, and why they're in there, but I've seen reports that the, the Wagner group, the mercenaries, which really have been providing a cover for Putin and, and his engagement, that they are, are, are pulling back now. What are you hearing on that front?
1: Yeah, I mean, a few days ago, there was this, uh, this barrage of reports that they were pulling out, and it seems that they have withdrawn uh, from some sites. I think it was in, in the west and in the south of Sirt, But they haven't done a complete withdrawal. Um, And that would be really surprising because, you know, we've seen not just an entrenchment in Sirt. um, And by the way, when we talk of an entrenchment, it's also this idea that, you know, they're going door to door through certain neighborhoods and booby trapping up houses. So this could very much just be a withdrawal into certain neighborhoods so that if an offensive takes place, they know where, um, you know, what neighborhoods they'll move into first and they'll have to deal with these booby traps. But they've also been, you know, putting up air defences, uh, not just in Sirte, but around various pieces of oil infrastructure across Libya. So it seems that, that, they're, that they are there to stay. And the big question is, do they really want to defend the position and get sucked into a war in Libya? Um, or are they just trying to push the Turks' hand to negotiate with them, uh, you know, to, to freeze the conflict, to maintain a dichotomy uh, where Turkey and Moscow can play off one another? And I think in that hand, Moscow would be promising Turkey that, you know, Egypt will be dragged into this as well. And, and you know, you guys can negotiate with Egypt. We can be the broker between all of you. And, and you know, we can keep this conflict acceptable to all parties and not push anybody to, to the end here, because that's, um, that's territory where nobody knows what will happen.
0: Illegal migration, uh, about the only thing that seems to get Europe's uh, serious attention when it comes to Libya, what is happening on the front uh, who's running it and is it less of a catastrophe or are we just not hearing about it
1: Well a bit of both you know if you if you look at the numbers there are less migrants who are crossing the the Mediterranean and at the same time there are less migrants who are making their way into Libya due to to border problems and due to other problems along the route but the kind of treatment and the livelihoods um, of migrants who are still going through Libya, who still number in the thousands, by the way, the tens of thousands, and who, who are going to try to cross the Mediterranean uh, is still shocking and, and completely in, inhuman. And these old, kind of, well, when I say old, a few years old, agreements between uh, the Libyan Coast Guard uh, and various European bodies which allows for, for the Libyan Coast Guard to be informed of any boats that are setting off and to make sure that any migrants are picked up by a Libyan flagged vessel instead of a European flagged vessel. Uh, we can see that this, you know, this kind of shocking cycle of migrants who get bounced between various detention centres, who, who get tortured and ransomed in order to, to raise the money to pay for a sea crossing, only to then get picked up by the Coast Guard and enter the system once again, uh, is is still very much alive and I'm not sure where the solution comes from because you know as you mentioned before when or as you el- alluded to when when there aren't hundreds of thousands of migrants crossing the Mediterranean then then nobody cares
0: but is the GNA involved in this uh, are forces who support the GNA involved
1: yeah um you know there are the Coast Guard for one is under the Ministry of Interior um, and it depends how far down this, this ladder you want to go because there is kind of evidence that there are relationships between Coast Guard units and people smuggling gangs. There is clear that various militias who have kind of infiltrated the Ministry of Interior uh, in the sense that, that, that they've set up shop there uh, are running det- detention centers and are you know, a law unto themselves. And it's the perfect kind of representation of the fact that the government of national accord still has to go a long way to be the kind of centralized government that you or I would be familiar with. There's a lot of work to still be done. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, finally, Tarek, do you think we are going to see an all-out confrontation with these outside players coming in in a a significant way? And if that happens, what what is the likely outcome for Libya and, and the Libyan people?
1: I think so, and uh, I think it's, it's going to be disastrous. I mean, look, the, the international players have all been bought into Libya over the last few years, primarily by, by Libyan groups who are so desperate to get one up over their enemy that they're willing to sell out, as it were. Um, the Turkish and GNA case is slightly different given the kind of finality of what Haftar was pushing in Tripoli, but that was the rule of thumb. But now I think for the first time we're seeing international groups convincing Libyans that they need to keep fighting and that they just need to, to, you know, one more push, one more war. And it's starting to remind me of Syria in that way, that every faction believes that all they need is one more push, uh, one more battle, and then everything will be all right and they can make peace on their terms. But it it never works out that way. We have a situation whereby the... Egyptian army is being pushed to intervene uh, where we have more and more weaponry pouring into the country on a daily basis. And this is kind of completely ignored now. And that spells disaster, because at least when the fighting was in Tripoli, it was the capital. And, and it was getting as much international attention as events in Libya will ever get. But a war in Sirt, you know, if, if we look at previous wars in Sirt, even when they were fighting against ISIS who were there, or we look at, you know, the war that happened in Benghazi or in Derna, very few people will care. Um, And so we'll perhaps see a massive escalation in the type of weaponry used. Um, We'll see a massive escalation in the number of deaths because there's a lot of open ground around Jufra and Sirte, because artillery and air power will be used more often, and because these booby traps have become seemingly a a new normal in Libya. And just to kind of give you a scale of that, it's a bit of a sidetrack, but... You know, in the month since the war in Tripoli ended, we've had over 150 casualties now from people trying to dismantle these booby traps. So in a state of war, imagine how much higher that will be. And 150 people, that's a lot of people. So every indicator suggests that this war will be bloodier, it will be messier, it will be more destructive. And it will carry the potential for more unexpected, massive kind of consequences to occur. Uh, such as the Egyptians getting sucked into a forever war, such as, you know, causing tribal disruptions uh, within Libya. It's potential that the the Libyan Arab armed forces won't be able to take the strain of another long term conflict. Uh, We don't know how this will bleed into the Sahel. There's the interplay with Sudan. There are so many potential areas that could blow up as part of a sustained or prolonged conflict in central Libya. And there's also, you know, the issues closer to home for people in, in, in Europe and the United States, such as how much more strain uh, will NATO take. So, yeah, overall, it's 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 bad for everybody but the arms dealers.
0: Tarek, uh, thank you. Thank you again. And uh, as you say, it's, it's a grim scenario.
1: Yeah, thank you, Bill. Hopefully we'll be discussing uh, happier days the, the next time I'm on.
0: Hope so. Thanks so much. Take care. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. And if you're a student or retired, we're now offering a new rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on arabdigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.